0: You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast. Each podcast we look at what's going on in each cropping region, focusing on those pesky weeds. Welcome to the last Weed Smart podcast for the year. And I'm joined one last time for twenty seventeen by my co-host Peter Lee. How are you going, Pete?
1: Yeah, very well, Jess. How are you going?
0: Oh, I'm alright. Can't believe it's only a few days until Christmas, it's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah, it always creeps up on you, but yeah, well, I think we've got the Chrissy shopping nailed this year. What about yourself? Are you on
2: top
0: of it? Oh, Rick has given, my partner Rick has given me a challenge to get him something meaningful for Christmas, and I just, he's not helping me at all. He said, I want something <laughs> meaningful. It all Girl, stemmed, it me all stemmed from me, yeah, it all stemmed from me spending $500 on shopping. We have a rule that if you spend over $300, you're supposed to consult one another, and I broke the rule. Right. And uh, now my task, my punishment, is to find a meaningful gift for him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it's really hard. I don't know.
1: There's a good book called How to Get Rich. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he's not a huge fan of reading, and it has to be it has to be in the same price range as the money that I spent five hundred dollar meaningful oh, gift. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know. I think Electric I'm just going. To yeah, actually, that is actually a really good. That's good at g- this. Yeah, no, you are good at that. But then I'm concerned that, like, he would die. He's like, oh. like, he's very good at skating, but... Mm, no, know. he'll be all right. You reckon?
1: Yeah, they got brakes.
0: Do they? Yeah, I
1: think so.
0: That's pretty cool. Yeah. didn't know that. I'll have to... <laughs> okay. Sounds like I've got a very intense researching ahead of me for this gift. Thanks, Pete, but that's a good tip. How about you? What What's in store for Christmas for you this year?
1: Uh, yeah, a bit of family catch-up. Uh, Christmas at home in Geraldton and then a bit of a holiday in Margaret River later on when it quietens down a bit.
0: Very nice, that sounds awesome. Well, yes, we here at WeSmart and Ari, because we're both working for both platforms, we really didn't take much of a break coming up to the end of the year. We've been very busy and we recently had the Cropping and Resistance Forum which was supported by grdc and run with the ccdm and ari which we both attended and so this podcast is going to give a bit of an overview of some of the presentations that attendees got to listen to there it was a really good event wasn't it pete
1: Yeah, it was great up in Dalby in Queensland and uh, yeah, we got really good attendance, mix of agronomists, industry and farmers. So yeah, I think they heard some good things and I think we've made a good start at putting the spotlight on resistance up there.
0: Definitely. Well, we're going to hear from a few of those speakers. The first person we're going to hear from is Richard Daniel and he's going to be talking on the podcast in a minute about uh, resistance in the in wild oats in the northern region in particular. And his presentation, he was the first, I think, to kick off the day at the Cropping and Resistance Forum. So he's the CEO of the Northern Grower Alliance, been doing it for over a decade. And yeah, he's got some interesting things to say about how the northern region is managing resistance. Was there anything noteworthy that you wanted to mention before we jump into Richard's interview, Pete?
1: I guess it's like a fair bit of New South Wales and Queensland. They really use the fops and dims, just you know the, the grass selective post emergence for a long, long time uh, and broke them in wild oats. Wild oats you know find it hard to evolve resistance because they're hexaploid, they've got six copies of the genes and, uh, and they've broken it they've broken the fops and dims up there. So they had to use those herbicides for many years in a row to, to break them and uh, and now they're looking for something else. So yeah, Richard uh, did have a few good ideas.
0: All right, well, let's take a listen. I'm speaking with Richard Daniel, he's the CEO of the Northern Grower Alliance, and you were part of a panel discussion today at the Cropping and Resistance Forum. What were some of the core things you went over, Richard?
2: My role, just was really looking at some of the management strategies we've got to consider much more fully Herbicide resistance in wild oats has been around in northern New South Wales for about 15 or 20 years. We've managed it reasonably well, but just started to hit the wall where even um, the use of clethoderm or select is starting to uh, cause issues or or have issues. And we're at the stage where we've just got to uh, reconsider any other non-herbicide options and slot them back into our farming system.
0: Now, the northern region, it's got some challenges and also some benefits compared to other areas of the country. Can you just give us a bit of a brief overview of some of those challenges so that other people around the other side of the country can kind of get an understanding of what you're dealing with?
2: One of the best things we've had as an advantage in the north is that we've got summer cropping. And so with summer cropping you rotate out, so you've got a winter fallow before the summer crop to manage these weeds without using group A chemistry. And you usually have a winter fallow after the summer crop. So essentially you've got two winters to really wind down that seed bank, which is a very, very effective strategy. Some of the things that's starting to uh, cause an issue with that is where we then double crop back into a crop like chickpeas suddenly instead of having two winters out we've only got one winter out and we're probably doing less than half as good a job in terms of managing those wild oats then we've got a fairly non-competitive crop in chickpeas where we have no other options other than group a in the crop and we suddenly put ourselves into a uh, back ourselves into a corner yeah, right. um, now obviously chickpeas are a, a major major crop Um, because they're one of our best gross margin crops. But we've just got to be very careful where we're slotting them in the rotation, and particularly to make sure that we're not putting them into those high-risk wild oat-resistant paddocks.
0: So what's the the strategy for someone who is looking at a potential resistance issue? What do they need to do?
2: Um, Wild oats is... In some respects, a little bit of an easier target because it's one where we can practice patch management. Um, you do get those very, very defined patches early on. So in chickpeas, you notice a weed or wild oat escape very early on compared to an a cereal crop. Oh, okay. So you should be picking that up fairly early to be able to get in there and... Uh, apply some sort of patch management that might be if you're very concerned about group A resistance using Roundup, sacrificing a small area of crop, it could be chipping, it could be tillage, um, whatever strategies can suit your system and the size of the issue. Another benefit for wild oats in a way is that what you've got in the paddock is really what you're facing and so if you can hammer away at that paddock maybe with residual herbicides and other options for a couple of years, you can wind that seed bank down very effectively um, without getting a lot of new incursions. Some of our other weeds, like uh, common south thistle, are so easily windspread that you can do a great job in that individual paddock, but you keep getting um, new infestations coming through. Um, So we've got a couple of benefits, really, or advantages with wild oats.
0: Yes, and so it just means adding that diversity to your system,
2: really? Absolutely. It's adding the diversity. One of the first options is uh, usually thinking about other herbicide approaches, which isn't ideal, we all know, but it's the easiest um, strategy. Residual herbicides for wild oak management haven't really been um, used to any great degree in the north, partly because soil moisture is such a big issue for us that um, doing a full incorporation was never really uh, a very practical solution. However, using those residual herbicides with incorporation by sowing, such as trifluralin or, or Avidex, are tools which can be the basis that you start to build these other strategies on. They're not going to be standalones; so they might do a 70% job, but that 70% plus you know the ability from a post-emergent herbicide or patch management or some of these other strategies can start to provide a a good overall level of control.
0: Yeah so if growers are taking on this advice and agronomists are sharing this advice with growers do you think that there is a win at the end because there there is that concern about resistance in the northern region but do you think it's all doom and gloom or is there is there light at the end of the tunnel?
2: Look um we we really saw the wild oat issue with resistance appear 15 to 20 years ago in northern New South Wales, particularly in areas where they were dominant winter crop right. um, operations. So that was part of that swing to, to more sorghum or dryland cotton in the rotation. Um, they, in general, have been able to manage the issue pretty well for the last 10 or 15 years. But it seems that we've now got to the time where a verdict select um, which has been a common in crop mixture is starting to hit the wall right so we've 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 worked the system reasonably well we've pushed it for another five or ten years (laughs) and we're now just starting to hit the next issue um, with regard to resistance where we're going to have to look at all these other strategies
0: yeah certainly (laughs) all right well thank you so much Richard my pleasure Thank you very much to Richard Daniel there for spending a bit of time chatting with me. I know he had to rush off to another event so really good to be able to just get a bit of an overview of his presentation and Pete he mentioned the money crop of chickpeas and there's that temptation for growers to keep growing it because obviously it's making the big dollars at the moment but that's not always a good tactic is it?
1: Well it's tricky isn't it? We want farmers they want to be profitable. And so they've got to grow the most profitable crop. And at the moment in that part of the world, it seems that chickpeas is the one that people uh, are liking to grow to make profit. It's the the money crop of the minute. And, uh, And then there's a temptation to keep growing chickpeas as often as you can. And then they're just relying really on the fops and dim herbicides. So either we've got to come up with some new strategies in chickpeas, or we've got to diversify a bit. For me, I always say, you work out the most profitable rotation then we throw enough weed management at it. Having said that, we, diversity is the answer, diverse rotations, diverse tactics is the answer. So it's a real tricky one when you have one crop which sort of seems to be making more money than the other crops. It's, it's a fine line, Jess.
0: Yeah, it's definitely hard, especially if all your neighbours are growing chickpeas and talking about the profits they're getting and you're there doing diverse tactics. You're like, oh, is this uh-huh. the right choice?
1: That's right, you've got to still choose profitable tactics, profitable crops, so yeah, very fine line to walk, but we do know that if we just grow the same crop year after year and use the same herbicide year after year, it's not going to work, so we do need to think of something else.
0: Mm. Sage advice but we had some other speakers on the day as well Pete at the Cropping and Resistance Forum we didn't get to interview all of them because we had a number of people the podcast would go on too long so we're just trying to give you a nice snapshot of what happened on the day in Dolby a couple of weeks back and the next person we're going to hear from is Dr Lee Hickey so he leads a research team at the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at the University of Queensland On the day at the cropping resistance forum, Dr. Lee He gave a really interesting presentation, and Pete, we've chatted about where they keep the. I guess it's like a plant library a seed library of all these old um, seeds from old breeds of plants and he talked about that in his presentation and how he's using some old genetics to make uh, essentially new crops which are either you know resistant to disease or, or whatever it may be that's kind of his area of expertise and it was such an interesting presentation and we're going to hear from him in a sec about a bit more of what he's focusing on, Pete. But it sounds like he's got just so many balls in the air. He's juggling a lot of different projects. It seems like, and a really interesting guy.
1: Yeah, he's pretty impressive, wasn't he? He gave a very uh, entertaining and interesting presentation, and you could really feel his passion for it. He was really into it. Talked about going to Russia and and uh, finding the the uh, the sea bank of um i can't remember the russian scientist's name but amazing uh amazing scientist and just it's mind-blowing isn't it that we have to go back in time go back to these old seed banks to find genes that have been sort of bred out of our current cultivars and there yeah, that they're sort of doing that in in a range of crops uh and yeah lee's presentation was super interesting about about what they found in those old uh, seed banks
0: definitely all right well let's take a listen we're speaking with Dr Lee Hickey and you're from the University of Queensland and he presented at the Cropping and Resistance Forum which is just finished up, everyone's having their afternoon tea, there's been lots of good cakes and biscuits around and Lee, you talked about next generation genetics and technology for crop protection, can you just give us a little bit of a broad overview of what you presented at the forum?
3: Yeah, well, what I presented was uh, next-gen genetics, but it's next-gen genetics uh, could, in fact, be old genetics. Um, and the reason is, you know, plant breeding has made huge progress in terms of the last 100 years to develop the crops that we, we grow today. But this selection that's been performed by plant breeders has forced our materials to go through essentially a genetic bottleneck. And because they've been selecting for yield and quality, Especially in terms of disease resistance, this has been maybe not such a very good thing. Uh, There's less diversity for the resistance genes for many of our major crops in uh, the elite germplasm that plant breeders are using today. So what we're doing is we're going back to the, the seed banks where a lot of this diversity for our crops is preserved and it was collected prior to modern plant breeding yeah
0: it was really interesting because we've spoken on the podcast before about the the seed vaults especially the one in Svalbard, and you gave a nice story about the one in russia in st petersburg and that kind of led into a bit of a discussion about speed breeding can you give us a little bit of insight about what you're doing with these old genetics and how it's benefiting or could lead to potential benefits for uh, new breeds or diverse breeds in the future
3: yeah, the, you know, the land races and, and, and accessions that we have stored and preserved in our seed banks, it's, they're not new. I mean, they've been there for a long time. They were collected uh, you know, uh, more than 100 years ago for a lot of these accessions from around the world. But we haven't really used them very well in terms of modern plant breeding. And essentially, it's because it just takes too long to transfer the, the useful traits from these relatively unadapted materials into the modern uh, cultivars that we grow today. And, and that's because many, many cycles of backcrossing are needed to transfer these these special genes. Um, to separate them from things that are, that are negative in terms of uh, production on farm today. So, so whether it be too tall a plant height or poor grain quality, for instance. One of the cool things that we've developed is a system called speed breeding, which enables up to six generations of wheat per year. And so this is a fantastic tool for uh, transferring these valuable genes very quickly from from the seed vault uh, into the paddock, hopefully. That's the idea.
0: Yeah, it's really cool, and yeah, potential for for new crop varieties, which are going to have lots of benefits, and I think you mentioned in your presentation there is one that's going to be commercially available shortly.
3: Yeah, we've used the speed breeding uh, tool uh, with my colleagues at the University of Queensland to to develop uh, the first uh, APH wheat variety, so that's the best uh, wheat for for making bread. and we've actually transferred grain dormancy for tolerance to pre-arvest sprouting in the speed breeding system. Uh, It really represents a step change in the varieties that have tolerance to sprouting uh, only made possible using the speed breeding system. Um, So we're really excited about exploiting this speed breeding tool in plant breeding in the future uh, to transfer all sorts of traits into uh, our varieties to make them better, more productive, more disease-resistant on-farm
0: and Peter Newman asked you the question about the potential for helping with I guess vigor of crops to combat weeds in those crop varieties and you gave a bit of an answer can you just give the I guess the same answer for our podcast listeners if there's any anything happening in that space which could help with competing against weeds
3: yeah, one of the traits that we're interested in looking at is uh, early vigour. Uh, essentially, the the rate at which the the crop uh, establishes very early in the very early days after sowing. This can be the size of the leaves, uh, the rate of the leaf appearance, and you know we were inspired by some fantastic work done by uh, Dr. Greg Grabetzky at CSIRO. He's he's laid the foundation for this work in wheat, and uh, so we're starting to explore barley and the possibilities of improving the weed competition in barley varieties. It's not going to be easy. Um, Based on our early work, uh, the genes responsible for weed competitiveness or early vigour are also tied up with other characteristics of the crop like flowering time and plant height. So it's going to be tricky to get the right genetic combinations.
0: Yeah, for sure. And speaking of flowering time, this is not what was in your presentation, but this week you did have an announcement about a gene discovery which was about flowering time in wheat and barley can you tell us a little bit about that discovery
3: yeah it's pretty exciting news we've we've identified um, the first key uh, gene involved in directing root growth uh, in wheat and barley Uh, so it's it's a huge breakthrough because we really knew very little about what's going on underground in our crops our plant breeders are focused on manipulating and selecting the above ground components which we can see but roots they're underground The gene we've identified uh, as a key player is is called Vernalization 1. As you said, key gene in the flowering time pathway, Um, and it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that flowering time is synchronised somewhat with root development. Now the challenge comes, can we uh, pair the right flowering time with the right root system in these different production regions around Australia, and that's the real challenge. Working out what's the preferred root system architecture for the different production areas around Australia is also going to be very challenging.
0: It will be, but it's very interesting. It sounds like you're the man to follow. Just uh, give people your, your Twitter handle so they can keep up to date with everything that's happening because it sounds like you're juggling lots of balls in the air.
3: <laughs> yeah, I love to use Twitter, so my handle is uh, Dr. Hickoff. Uh, it, it's at, at D-R-H-I-K-O-V it's my Russian alias uh, so uh, yeah please connect w- uh, with me on Twitter, I'd love to uh, share and exchange uh, some science and, um, and, and wheat and barley stories.
0: Excellent, thanks so much Thank you Thank you so much to Dr. Lee Hickey for taking some time out on the day to have a chat with me so we can share some of what his presentation covered at the Cropping and Resistance Forum. And it was definitely hard to get him to pull him aside because everyone wanted to chat with him and Pete about all of these interesting projects he is involved in. And sometimes sometimes a bit confusing, Pete. Like I, You mentioned to me that you saw something that Lee put up on Twitter the other day that sort of threw you a little bit.
1: Yeah, it was some sort of a gene map with all these different branches going everywhere. It was just horribly confusing and just made me realise just how challenging wheat breeding in particular is, because wheat breeding is like wild oats, it's hexaploid, and if you look at the size of the wheat ge- genome compared to the human genome, it's like many times bigger than the human genome. So uh, it is an absolutely mind-blowing area of science that is is—it's uh, so specialist and so... So incredibly um, difficult. <laughs> I was, yeah. It, it takes um, people with with really significant research projects to start to understand it and turn it into something useful. And yeah, Lee is the man. It was very impressive. Hopefully, they do deliver on um, on some of the uh, um, the research that they've got going on because it sounds like they're on the verge of some really good things
0: Yes it really does, very promising and it's exciting It's exciting to imagine what the future might hold in terms of what kind of plant varieties we'll have, so yes we'll look to the future and uh, yeah, the yeah very exciting stuff but we're also going to hear from tony lockery he's an agronomist who was there on the day at the copying resistance forum and also paul McIntosh, who is part of our team and helped organize the event and we're going to get a bit of an overview from them next pete but what were some of the highlights for you from the day
1: it's interesting Jess. i mean we've got to remember the forum was about weeds insects and disease and in every one we talked about mixing versus rotating herbicides or mix and rotate and the mix and rotate message came through strongly from all disciplines i mean the entomologists and insects were more talking about rotating than mixing and i'd sort of be interested to hear their reasoning on that i think mixing insecticides could be a good thing too but you know i'll have to um, trust their judgment there but um mixing herbicides and mix and rotate and also fungicides that was a very strong message from everyone and um, that's what tony actually goes on to say he said we've actually been doing that for the last 10 years or so and he said it's good to hear that they've been doing the right thing
0: yes that's right all right well let's take a listen to first up tony lockery and then we'll hear from paul McIntosh after that just a bit of an overview of the Copy and resistance forum let's take a listen I'm just having a chat with Tony Lockrey, based in Mooree. How are you going, Tony? Yeah, well, thank you. Now you're an agronomist, and we've just attended the Cropping and Resistance Forum. Can you just give us a little bit of background on the reasons behind why you came along today?
4: Yeah, I've been an agronomist for about 20 years, and uh, obviously in the last 10 years, I think I've seen the most a big increase in resistance in particularly in weeds uh, to herbicides that we've been using, also in insecticides, in particularly in the cotton industry and to a certain extent in in fungicides in our area so I guess I just want to stay ahead of the game in terms of understanding what the newest techniques and technologies are what's what's being studied and what's understood um, just trying to lead my growers that I look after forward in uh, yeah, in getting the best job we can and and also being sustainable in what we're doing
0: yeah definitely so what were some of the points which really stood out from the presenters today for you
4: i um, really interested to see how quickly now the, the breeders can assess really old wild-type wheats and chickpeas with uh, genome mapping and then grab genes that they want and incorporate them into our new variety. So that's a massive step forward uh, in terms of the time required to bring new traits into existing varieties or, or new varieties. That's really impressive. We're really keen on Chris O'Connell's talk on uh, droplet spectrum analysis with uh, the products that we actually use in the paddock being analyzed through the spray nozzle instead of just water that's critical for us because it's it's real that's what we're doing in the paddock so we need to know what's going on there was heaps of stuff to learn
0: yeah heaps of stuff yeah so the australian ground spray calculator that was what chris o'donnell presented on which you were, you were mentioning there so do you reckon people will really use that as a tool when it becomes more widely available
4: yeah, I definitely will. That's that's critical for us as agronomists in in our recommendation. If we're recommending something that's outside the droplet spectrum that's on the label, then we're in trouble. So, and that information hasn't been available. So yeah, having that information is critical to making sure we do the right job. And and that's not just about getting product in on the ground in the paddock we're spraying. It's about keeping it off neighbouring crops and, and other sensitive areas. So. And it's Chris O'Donnell, not Chris O'Connell. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so in terms of some of the issues the growers you're looking after in Moree and the surrounding regions, what's some of the tips you took on board here which you'll apply when you get back to your your region?
4: Uh, yeah, some of them I was pretty happy to hear that we're already doing. So using different groups, um, different modes of action in, in single applications for herbicides, We've been doing that for probably 8 or 10 years, so that's, that's good, we're on the right track there and that's probably why we're still getting good results, but yeah, just understanding that um, some of the different modes of resistance better, um, modes of action of the groups of herbicides we're using and how to best use them
0: awesome well thank you so much for sharing what you learned and yeah it's really important for obviously agronomists to come along to events like this because that's how we get information out to growers and really make those practical changes which uh, influence good farming going forward so appreciate you attending and appreciate your feedback.
4: Uh, no that's fine we, um, we have a lot of our own grower forums down there in Moree for our AMPS growers so I need to be able to lead that to a certain extent we do our own research as well but to be up to date with the latest research across the board is really important um, for us to lead the growers, as I said, so uh, really, really good day Thanks. a time well spent.
0: Thanks Tony. Thanks mate. I'm chatting with Paul McIntosh, Paul you helped put on the day today for the Cropping and Resistance Forum, how did you think it all went?
5: Excellent, excellent just to coin a word, we had a great selection of speakers there across all range of topics and then we've had the demonstration this afternoon of the optical sprayer and Peter and... uh, Kylie Bates' header here with the uh, Chubblesford front and the, and the chaff lining at the back so it was a fantastic day and I believe everyone got a good good dose of information that they need for this cropping in the north.
0: Excellent and I noticed that you were having quite a few chats with agronomists and other people who were here did you get any standout feedback which uh, spoke well of the day I suppose did anyone have any comments that were really uh, a standout?
5: All of them did. Uh, agronomists are built on experience, and they experience things over the years, so things that would influence one here today mightn- mightn't turn another bloke on, but they all got a little bit of good stuff out of it, and they didn't learn everything from one speaker, they learned a little bit. So they've gone away with a whole heap of ideas, a whole heap of hope for the future about what we're doing with agriculture, when you listen to people like Lee Hickey, who's absolutely dynamic. So those sorts of things really boost your your level of enthusiasm for going on and doing agronomy for another five or ten years.
0: Yeah, definitely. They keep the spirits up. And, yeah, was there... For you personally, Paul, was there something that stood out in the day that uh, took you by surprise, or you think will be really revolutionary, or something that, yeah, just some a standout for you?
5: I was very happy with Peter Basher's header machine being here. Peter and Kylie brought that over this morning. I think that's a great way to to control our hard-to-kill weeds. A bit like Peter said, the Johnson grass is something I hadn't considered. We've got a real problem with Johnson grass in the north, and this header is obviously going to get a bit of that Johnson grass country back under control Lee Hickey as I said was was dynamic and always gives you full of enthusiasm and the other guys too with all the herbicide resistance and the pesticide resistance in general I learned something from everyone but Lee Hickey and Peter Bacher's machine were the standouts for me. Alright
0: Paul well thanks so much yeah it does seem like everyone had a good day and yeah hopefully some practical changes come about because of the forum
5: Yeah I believe so Jess well and truly it's been overdue up here we had a good roll up lots of good sets of ears that I know were listening so it, it will give us practice Change up here in the north, and thank goodness for that.
0: Definitely, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Jess. Thank you to Tony Lockery there at the top for giving us an overview of the cropping and Resistance Forum in Dolby this year, and also to Paul McIntosh as well, who helped organise it and is part of our team. And Pete, this is the end of the 2017 podcast today. Pete, we've had a really good year for Weedslot, haven't we?
1: Yeah, I saw Lisa Mayer sent an email to the stakeholders the other day with just some of the numbers and just the level of engagement that WeedSmart has had this year compared to next year. It's great to see You know, so many more website visits and, and the podcast and, uh, and webinars and all of the events and so on. We've actually had a really big year in terms of engaging more growers. So thanks everyone for your support and we're thrilled that, um, that the messages are reaching more people. It, it's uh, been a really positive year for WeedSmart.
0: Yes, it's very exciting. And, yeah, I pulled all those numbers not too long ago. And I was like, oh, wow, we've you know, because we've had the new website this year. So we've had a lot of new things happen in the year. And it's great to see that people are engaging with that. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and keep in touch via our social media networks. And we'll catch you early next year for our 2018 podcasts. And we hope that you'll join us. So, yeah, thanks very much for being co-hosts as well, Pete. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks Jess, been a great year and have a Merry Christmas and to all the
5: listeners, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.